there everybody we are starting to make our way out to the mound for another mound visit so get up and stretch those legs out because it's the seventh inning stretch we are calling all mariners fans and really all you catching enthusiasts that tune in each and every week the mound visit is your place to get the best information from current and former major league catchers catching coaches and coordinators about what has created them so much success for them personally and what continually drives the position forward Stay locked into this episode, we are diving into the 14-year career of Mariners legend Dan Wilson. Dan discusses his incredible career with the M's and how the catching position has evolved. So here we go. Maestro, a one, a two, a three. Take me out to the ball game. Two on the way to Dan Wilson and a swing and a high fly ball belted. Deep to left center field and get up. All right, hey there again. We are back here at the mound visit, and today's episode is a special one. This man needs no introduction. Please let us welcome to the mound 14-year big league veteran catcher and Mariners legend Dan Wilson. Dan, thank you for joining the show. How are you doing? Doing all right. Thanks for having me. This is an outstanding opportunity. You guys do such a great job with the mound visit, and um, you know, I've listened to several and, and, uh, you had my good friend, Tony Arnrich on not long ago and <laughs> Tony's the best. I just love that guy. So, um, you know, uh, he, he reached out to me and said, these guys might want to have you on. I said, let's do it. And, uh, so I'm super excited to be here and, and thanks for the opportunity. Well, absolutely. We couldn't <clears throat> not jump at this opportunity, like you said, but, uh, it's truly a pleasure to speak with you. I have to say this one, I'm pinching myself a little bit because as a kid, with all the major networks that were limited with what games were shown in certain areas growing up here in the Midwest. Um, but I would always sneak out of bed late at night because Fox sports would still show Mariners games late at night. And so uh, my brother who was left-handed, he was Randy Johnson cause he was a pitcher. And I have to say this one, it's pretty surreal. Like I said, because I was a catcher, so I was Dan Wilson. So this is pretty exciting <laughs> for me. <laughs> but, uh, but first, we always like to start our guest off just to get you to know you a little bit more. Um, maybe some, find some things that people don't know about you. So we have this drill, what we call our rapid fire blocking drill. So we just ask you a bunch of questions. They can be one word answers or multiple. Your choice, pretty much. But it's sort of an icebreaker. And I guess the first question that I'm going to ask you and we'll kick it back and forth between Chris and I. Um, okay. But your favorite memory in professional baseball? Now, this could be minor league or it could be the big leagues. Um, well, you know, you have, as, as a career, you have a lot of them. Um, I think the thing that sticks out to me would be um, our one-game playoff against the Angels in 95. And obviously, that's a, it's a moment that gets played a lot here in Seattle. But um, – you know, to, to play a season, and unfortunately that year because of the work stoppage, it was a shortened season. I think we played about 140 games that year. But to play 140 games and have it all boil down to one um, contest um, and then to have your guy Randy, that, that like you mentioned before, uh, on the hill for you against a, a tough Mark Langston too, 
who were traded for each other at one point in their careers. And, and this was kind of a grudge match between the two of them. I mean, everything was really uh, boiled down into one ball game. And, and uh, to come out on top of that was, was pretty uh, exciting. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest moments, uh, you know, that I've had as a player. And, and uh, that group of guys stuck together for a long time and are still friends today because of the experience and, and the, the, uh, the bonding that we, 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 we were able to achieve through that. It was awesome. That was a phenomenal game. And I, and I was probably, I want to say, six years old at that time. But I still remember watching that game. But you no, meant 16, right, yeah. Tyler? No, yeah. he's, he's, a, he's a youngin'. <laughs> that was, I, I'm looking at my – that was like right when I got drafted. And I got drafted in 95. And, you know, I, I, Tyler's a kid, man. <laughs> they, they all are. You know, I'm like the, I'm like, I'm the old – the grandpa it seems like with with these kids on here now even with some of the uh the other guys we've had on the show you know I'm looking there I actually told uh Grandel I think I was I was in South Florida when he was five you know and he, I'm just like god I, my age is really showing now so <laughs> all right so my <clears throat> I'll jump over to my question so that that 1995 year me and my son actually sat down and watched the uh, game five against the Yankees. We were watching that on YouTube a couple weeks ago and sat through the extra innings and just, you know, that, that part of baseball was just, it was such a fun time. What I wanted to, uh, so I guess my, my first question I would have for you, who was, who was the hardest guy you ever caught, difficult-wise, hmm. with whether velocity or movement or just some guy that you went back and you're like, man, I got to be, I got to bring my A game. I got to be super sharp today because this guy is just filthy. Uh, great question. Um, two guys jumped to mind, both lefties, uh, both on that team. Uh, one was Randy, obviously, and, and um, because, you know, at the time, Randy was, was kind of an anomaly. He could throw mid-90s at that point. Uh, not a lot of guys threw mid-90s. Uh, he was six foot ten. You know, intimidation was a big part of his game. But he, it seemed like when he would stride out and reach out, he was, like, right on top of you. Nasty slider. Every once in a ball, while he would get on the outside of the ball, and it would just run off and almost rip your shoulder off trying to trying to get it. Um, so he was a guy he, you had to bring your A game. And incidentally, um, I, I can't go without mentioning, you know, in that game you mentioned, the, the, the game five against the Yankees, uh, we had a young catcher named Chris Widger. And I don't know if you guys know Chris or not. I was with I Chris in, in Montreal a little bit. So. Okay. Chris yeah. is just – he's just the greatest human being. Um, and I got a pinch hit for in the eighth inning, I think, or something like that. And Chris had to go in to catch. Um, and he had to catch the two guys I'm going to mention. One is Randy, the other one, Norm Charlton. And he had not caught, um, those guys much at all other than in the bullpen. I think I had caught since September 9th all the way through. Um, and he just had very little experience with those guys. And, and as I mentioned, they're two of the toughest guys. So for him to come in and do the job that he did in, in that moment, uh, with that much at stake and on the line is pretty phenomenal. So my hat has always gone off to Chris and just what he was able to do there. But but Norm Charlton, the other guy that I mentioned, um, Norm was a bulldog. I loved catching him, but it was the fourth ball. You know, he, he would just let that thing go, and, and you'd find it, you know, anywhere from 45 to 60 feet. And, uh, you know, you had to keep it in front of you most of the time in the ninth inning with guys on base. So uh, he was a guy where – um, if you didn't have your A game for the first eight innings, you, you needed it there in the ninth for sure. So my, my next question is somewhat similar to that. So not sure how much you watch of the game today, 
But if there was a pitcher in today's game you could catch, who would that be? Oh, wow. You know, I think as I watch the playoffs and I watch Garrett Cole do what he did, um, I, I, I would love a chance to catch a guy like that. I think, um, you know, obviously he's a great pitcher, but what he was able to do in the playoffs, he had every weapon possible um, in his arsenal. And what he was able to do and the consistency that he had in the playoffs was pretty phenomenal. And I think um, I, not in a sense that, like, I think I could do anything better, but it would just be fun to sit back there yeah. and watch <laughs> and, and, and learn from a guy like that because the way his ball was moving and, and the way he diced, you know, hitters up, it was, it was something to watch. And that would be a guy I'd, I would love to catch for sure. Wow. <clears throat> Who was the – all right, so different time period, obviously. Who is the best positional arm that you either played with or against that just made you go, wow, that's just an absolute bazooka? Oof. Um, you know, we had a third baseman, Mike Blowers. I don't know if you know Mike or remember mm -hmm. Mike. He was a mm -hmm. part of that early Mariners teams. Um, he had a great arm at third base um, and could really let the ball go. He was fun to watch throw. Um, you know, it, incidentally, I, I played, and, and that kind of reminds me, I played my first season after being drafted in 1990. My first season was in Charleston, West Virginia, and we had a young shortstop there named Trevor Hoffman. And uh, Trevor was still trying to make it as a position player, but um, that didn't work out for him. So he went on the mound there in Charleston and started his, you know, what became a Hall of Fame career for him. But he had an absolute hose, too. So it was fun to to watch him throw. And, and you know, it's that it's just that straight clothesline across the diamond, that great 12-6 backward rotation and true as a, you know, true as an arrow. And, and uh, that's really fun to watch. Was he shorter with his arm playing or was he as long as he was when he was pitching? Um, that's a good question. I don't remember that far back, but um, <laughs> he was probably a little shorter from shortstop. He had to be, but uh, just a great, great hose. So I asked this last, or last guest, excuse me, uh, this question. If there was one thing you could change about the game today or something that you would revert back to, what would it be? Oh, wow. Um, such a great question. You know, um, the game has changed so much. Um, I, I think, you know, to me, um, I think pitching has really become um, – very different than it used to be. I think pitching used to be a little bit more about hitting location, hitting spots, um, mixing pitches up and sort of fooling hitters. I think today it's a little bit more about just brute force at the top of the zone and, you know, a little bit more with the, with the slider down at the bottom of the zone. And, and, uh, you know, you take your chances that way. And I loved, I mean, that's the part of catching really that I loved was, you know, I think of another left-hander, Jamie Moyer, you know, didn't, didn't throw more than about 83, 84 miles an hour. So you, you went in there almost into a lineup almost naked, but you had to figure out a way to move it around, change speeds, mix it up. And that to me was, was really the joy of, of what it was to, to, to catch behind the plate. And that's, um, I, I think I missed that. There are still guys that do it. We have Marco Gonzalez here in Seattle who does a fantastic yeah. job of mixing and matching and changing speeds. Um, but by and large, I think that's the, the part of the game that, that uh, I seem to miss the most like that all right <clears throat> so who was the first guy that you caught in the big leagues first guy I caught in the big leagues wow you think I'd remember 
Um, I was scheduled to catch a guy that I caught in AAA all year, but then I got scratched. Um, <laughs> I don't remember the first guy that I caught in the big leagues. That's horrible. That's a great question. You stumped me. <laughs> well, what, own game. Okay. Well, let's let's go let's go to the other opposite end of the spectrum. Then, who was your first at bat? I, I had my first at bat. I don't remember the pitcher's name. It was in the Houston Astrodome. And um, I tell this story a lot. I was, you know, as, as a young player, you're just so jacked up. Um, I pretty sure I, I had started my swing before the ball left his hand. And it was just three swings. And I was walking back to the dugout. I wish I could remember his name, but um, I think he was a September call up as well. And I just, um, I just swung and I had no idea. I didn't see the ball at all. But uh, <laughs> at least I got my feet wet, and I was ready to roll. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right, this might be a dumb question, but, uh, you know, some people, some, some players just have that, that, that nostalgia of playing at, in certain places. So, Kingdom or Safeco? Oh, wow, great question. Um, I, I'm going to say 50-50 on that. I think um, there are so many great things about the Kingdom, and there's so many horrible things about the Kingdom. Um, but to me, the things I took away, the, the good memories are, are the noise level that, that we could get in that place. Um, and obviously, a lot of our early, uh, you know, the whole 95 season, the 97 team, we, we made the playoffs as well. And, and all those memories, um, you know, watching in spring training, watching the implosion of the kingdom. Um, I was standing <laughs> next to one of our broadcasters, Rick Riz, when it happened. And both of us were strangely emotional uh, when, when we saw that thing get uh, uh, eliminated to dust and and um, I think you know there's a lot of great memories in that building but Safeco Field at the time now T-Mobile um, you know what a great ballpark it really is an amazing ballpark they did an outstanding job there and you know a couple more playoff runs there and and, and obviously 2001 the 116 games I mean all of those great memories in that ballpark um, and so I, I can't really put my finger on one or the other, but they were both great places and really my career split both of them. Um, so, you know, to be a part of both of those ballparks was, was awesome. All right. <clears throat> my last question. So you had a lot of the listeners won't really think of him as a Mariner, but you were, you were there when Alex Rodriguez first came up. Mm -hmm. So what did you like better Alex as a shortstop? or as a third baseman? Uh, you know, I liked, I liked him as a shortstop. I mean, I think the thing about A-Rod was, he, you know, especially when he was with the Mariners coming up, he was an extremely athletic kid, and, and his body and his body type um, was uh, – he was kind of a man among boys in, in some ways, you know, for a 19-year-old kid to, to be put together like that. And I think at the time, the trend – was that direction for shortstops. It was more the Cal Ripken body type. And so yeah. I, I thought he did a great job at short. Obviously, you know, the, the game takes its toll. There's, you know, you, you go over time and, and maybe um, as you get older, things change and, and you're better off at a different position. But I think certainly at that point, seeing him at, at shortstop and, and make the plays, I mean, he was very athletic, very versatile player. And, and it, was, it was something to watch. So I have two more for you, Dan. <clears throat> the first one, there's, there's been a lot of notoriety thrown at our position now. Do you feel like that the catching position has changed for the better? And I guess to follow up on that, what I'm talking about is where we talk about 
back in the day that throwing was the sexy part of the game. Now it's receiving. Do you feel like that in that regard, it's changed, I guess, for the better? You know, I, I, I guess I don't look at it in better or worse terms. It's definitely different. Um, and I think back, you know, when you say back in the day, um, I, I think you're right. The arm was kind of the first thing people looked for behind the plate. Um, and that was kind of followed up by Kenny, Kenny block and Kenny hit. I mean, I don't think receiving really was even a, a part of the equation necessarily because there wasn't the, the emphasis on it. Um, and so I think it kind of it kind of lent itself to being a little bit more well-rounded, maybe as a catcher, and and you know the blocking and the throwing, um, certainly very athletic moves as is receiving, um, but but different different athleticism, and so I, I think it's just it's it's changed a lot, and I think it's just kind of focused in on one area that that really wasn't focused on before as much, and and obviously that's, um, you know the the you know the genesis of of what technology has done to the game is is really focused and in some ways you know you, you talk about a grand doll you, you talk about some of those guys that do it really well they've been able to make a career um and and make a really good living really focusing on that one area and so for mm -hmm. some guys it's really been an advantage and and guys have taken advantage of that and I think that's great um but I to say it's better or worse you know no chance I think to me again what what really stands out are the guys that um can lead a pitching staff, can develop relationships with their pitchers, can can get a ball club through a game, can get a pitcher through a game when he doesn't have his best stuff. And and that's to me, that's the 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 real meat of, of what catchers can do back there for you. And and that's I mean, we can talk all day about uh, you know Yadier Molina and what he's done with his glove back there and, and how he throws and, and he does all that exceptionally. But his manager has a hundred percent trust in in what he's gonna do behind the plate with his pitching staff, with his team. And that to me is, is what a catcher really is, is all about. I, I got that. one, I got one more. Okay. All right. So <laughs> you played for one of the, just an, an unbelievable baseball guy, Lou Pinella. So I, I want to know is during the time when he was your manager and he got tossed out of games on a regular basis, <laughs> what was one of the best ones that you've seen? Hmm. That's a good one, Chris. There's let's, just let's, two that come. We got we got to keep the language clean, but yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> um, there are two that come to mind. Um, one was in Cleveland, and I think it's pretty, it's pretty famous in some ways. Um, he went out. There was a call, I believe, at second base, and um, at some point, he threw his hat. Uh, I think probably to get a little bit closer to the umpire's face, whatever it was, and. Um, so when he finally got ejected from the game, his hat was laying somewhere out by second base. And he proceeded to kick his hat all the way back to the dugout. And I think at some point, finally, he picked it up and threw it in the stands. Um, but that was quite a few kicks. I'm, I'm almost positive he had a sore hamstring the next day because he, he took a few whacks at that thing to get it over to the dugout. But that was one. And then there was another one um, that he argued on my behalf that was a stolen base attempt and, and – um, our guy got the ball and, and the, the guy was able to slide around him, but, but Lou thought that he had slid out of the base path. Um, so he went out and actually laid down on the field and like showed the umpire <laughs> where he thought the runner had slid past the base and around the baseline. And, oh man, it was, it was awesome. But he, you know, um, anytime a manager goes out there and, you know, you don't see it as much anymore because of replay, but anytime a manager goes out there on your behalf, 
Um, what a great feeling that is as a player. And, and there was nobody, and I say this about Lou all the time, you know, I respect him. He gave me an opportunity in Seattle and, and really was able to start my career here. Um, but nobody in the ballpark wanted to win more than Lou Pinella did on a nightly basis. And, and his desire to win, his drive to win was, was second to none. And, and uh, he expected his players uh, to give 100% every night. He didn't have any team roles. He, he had show up on time and play hard. Those were his two team roles. He said it every spring training, show up on time, play hard, and you'll have no problems. And, and he's right. Uh, he just wanted you to play 100% every night the way he played. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was an awesome, awesome ride with him. And I really respect him and, and thank him for what he's done for me. But he entertained us too, no doubt about it. <laughs> So my last question for, and we'll wrap up the, the rapid fire blocking drill here. Um, what has been the best thing about retirement? Oh, great question. Um, I think for me, um, you know, just, just having more family time. Uh, we have four kids. So um, I think my oldest was maybe 10 or 11 at that time um, when, when I retired. And then we had like, you know, 10, eight, six, and three, something like that. So to be around home a little bit more was, was nice. You know, baseball's tough on families, and, and there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, as, as, as some of the guys raised concerns about that with the, with the Arizona plan, and it's tough on families. Um, so to, to be able to do that has been outstanding. And then, you know, I really thank the Mariners for allowing me to, to continue to be a part of the game on, on a limited basis. You know, it's um, not easy to, to let guys be around a little bit as opposed to being around every day, and, and the Mariners have – have been very gracious in allowing me to, to, to find different roles and different things to do to stay involved in the game enough. And, and I'm glad I have because, you know, and, and maybe we'll get into this, but the game has changed so much, uh, especially over the last 10 years that, you know, it's, I think it's hard for guys to even, if they'd been away from the game during that stretch to come back, I think it'd be a, a very different um, experience for them that they wouldn't, it'd almost be like a different sport. It would be like Greek. It, it just is so different now. And, but to be around here and be a part of it, see it, see it change I think has been very very helpful for me moving on here I guess we give our we give our guests and everybody just kind of like an opportunity for you to give your autobiography now you can make this long you can make it short but we just want to hear oh it straight from you and tell us just a little bit about yourself where you're from put where you played college at and and kind of what you are doing with the Mariners now I think that would be um, a neat thing to for our listeners to understand yeah um I uh I Grew up um, in the Chicago suburbs, um, town called Barrington, Illinois, and um, I was the youngest of three boys in my family, and, and I attribute a lot of um, my success as a player to, to my older brothers. I, you know, as a kid, you're always trying to, to be as good as your brother, especially when they're older, and so I had a brother who was four years older and seven years older than I was, so I was always from a young age, you know, pushing myself to be better and pushing myself to uh, compete with them. Um, so I, I, I'm thankful for that and, and uh, had a great high school coach in, in Barrington and was able to go on to play at the University of Minnesota for three years and, and a John Anderson's program there. Um, John is still there. He's, uh, in fact, my son just uh, was, was a member of the Gophers for the last three years uh, as well. So uh, when, you're, when your sons are getting coached by the same guy, you know someone's <laughs> been there a long time. But um, so I was able to get drafted out of the University of Minnesota and uh, a great program there. John and, and Rob Fornes here did such a great job there uh, preparing us, you know, for baseball and, and for life ahead. Uh, and I got drafted in the first round by, by the Cincinnati Reds in 1990. 
And that's where I was really introduced to Lou Pinella. He was the manager there starting in 1990. They won the World Series, and he was there in 91 and 92 as well. So I got to know him in spring training, and, and, um, and then uh, in September of 92 was called up, had a chance to play you know, during a regular season for Lou and just got a chance to, to get to know him a little bit. Then he came over here to Seattle in 93. I stayed in Cincinnati and then um, was traded over here to Seattle in 1994. Um, and, you know, stayed here for, for 12 more years in Seattle. And um, again, just super grateful for uh, the opportunities that, that were afforded me here in Seattle. And, and uh, you know, I got married along the way. My, my wife was from Barrington where I grew up. Um, and as I said, we, we have four kids and still live in the Seattle area. I uh, retired, but my last season was 05. And um, now, I, you know, again, I've, I've been involved with the Mariners off and on over the past, what is it, 15 years. Um, I do some games on TV and radio, broadcast uh, TV and radio a l- little bit. And then uh, over the last five, six years, I've been um, in player development as well and, and helping out catchers um, in the minor leagues and at the major league level occasionally. Uh, just, you know, lending a hand here and there. And, and uh, again, the Mariners have been great about uh, letting me be a part of that. And, and uh, so that's kind of brought me here to, to today. That's awesome. I wanted to go back to something that you said a little bit ago about how much the game has changed and how people that have been removed from the game, you know, that for, I don't know, a couple of years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, how difficult it would be for them to come back into it. Let's narrow this down into catching. Okay. Let's look at it that way. Um, in your opinion, if you had some one of your counterparts that said, "Okay, yeah, come on into the Mariners organization. Let's let's figure this thing out." What, what are some of those things that you're you're looking at to say, "Gosh, this is this is totally different. This is something that you need to pick up on quickly." Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a great question. I think let, let me first say too that that, you know, baseball has changed throughout the years. There's no question. I mean, at some point, every generation feels like theirs was the best. And, uh, but, you know, you, you had changes in the game. You had the, you know, you had the stolen base era. You had the, the fork ball era. And you've had the pitcher's era and the hitter's era. And, I mean, there, there's been different stages. I think the thing that's different now, and, and this is probably the, the introduction of technology, is just the rate at which things change. And so um, what used to take 10 years really can really take a year. I mean, you can find something on, on technology that you didn't realize. And now, you know, things start to change even in, within, a, within the course of a season. So um, that to me is, is the biggest difference. And when you look at catching, um, it has been one of the positions I think that has changed probably the most. I mean, you, you could argue that infield has changed with the shifts and, and whatnot. But catching has changed because of the, the focus on receiving and, and uh, you know, the strike zone and, and trying to steal strikes and whatnot. And to me, um, that has really been the uh, impetus for all the change behind the plate. And, and you talk about um, different stances, um, different approaches uh, to pitches. Uh, again, we didn't think about how we caught the ball. We just caught the ball. And, and now today, the idea of staying underneath the ball moving the ball, um, you know, being subtle, but being quick and, um, you know, all the things that all the little dynamics that go into catching and receiving, um, you know, those things just weren't an issue. And, and, and uh, to, to get 
and, and I think that's what's great about Tony Arnrich is, is he really understands it so well. And, and I've learned so much from Tony just listening and talking and, and, and seeing what he teaches. And, and uh, it, it's just been phenomenal learning experience for me. Um, and, and, and again, it's a position that I played, but yet I, there's so much that's, that there is to learn about it today. And, and uh, um, it's been fascinating to watch that, that change. Do you, do you feel like, or well, let me ask you this first. Are, are you a fan of the technology? And then do you feel like, you know, for example, some people maybe say, well, that's going to, on the surface, I'm a pretty darn good ball player, but <laughs> you start to dissect everything with the tech. Man, I'm, I'm really bad. I'm, I'm at the lower <laughs> end of the spectrum when it comes to the talent. Uh, so are you a fan? And then what, what's your thoughts on it, I guess? Um, you know, I think at first I was very uh, reluctant. I, I'm, I'm probably more of a traditionalist than not. Um, and so for me, it was hard. But again, I think, like we talked about before, um, looking at something that's different and, and not trying to put a good or bad on it, but just looking at it as different, I think is, is kind of how I've tried to approach it. And, and the position is different. Um, it's not better. It's not worse. It's, it's still a very difficult position. Um, and there are still a lot of things about it that are the same. Um, and, but, you know, it, it's changed a lot as well and, and it's different. So I think um, technology has really driven that. And, and when you can measure the strike zone and again, guys have taken advantage of that. They've used, they've used it to their advantage. And I think that's a great thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the one thing that, that you need, you know, we talk about it in the, in the Mariners minor leagues a lot is, is, is the idea of a growth mindset. I think, you know, the, the game um, is changing fast now. And I think it, it lends itself to being open to change. Anybody that's not open to change is going to have a difficult time. And, you know, Tony and I talk about it a lot. We, we talk about receiving, we teach receiving, understanding that in two years, maybe, um, <laughs> it might not even be an issue at all if they go to, a, to an automated strike zone. So, um, you know, we're, we're teaching this stuff, but understanding also that we may have to change dramatically uh, if that's something like that is ever introduced. So it's kind of a weird thing, but, but I think, you know, being open to change is, is really the, the ticket that guys need to have in the game today. Well, speaking of technology, <clears throat> now a few years ago, you know, probably for, for ratings and to give the fans more of an experience, they put the, the stupid little box that you see on television, what they call their, you know, here's what they define as a strike. Now, I've never heard it actually called a strike box. You know, the zone has always been kind of a gray area, depending on the umpire. You know, some guys are a little bit more loose. Uh, some guys are, have tighter zones. And, and that was one of the, the things that you'd go into a game. Who's umpiring today? Okay, this guy is, is a little tight. We got to make sure that we hit our spots better. This guy's going to give a little more. Let's keep going out there until, you know, until he says stop. You know, what, what do you think? Do you think that box helps or kind of hurts or it, it makes it too, I guess, too much under a microscope for people to really analyze it instead of saying, oh, well, that's, you know, clearly three inches off the plate versus, no, that's a good pitch. The pitcher hit the glove. It should be a strike. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I think it really lends itself to that, that not only is the game changed for catchers, but it's changed for umpires, too. Um, and, and, and the, you know, obviously they, they always have tried to, 
to follow the definition of the strike zone in years past, you know, spring training, they called high strikes and then you get into the season and it's like, they go back to what was familiar to them. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, when I broke into the league in 92, we had separate leagues. We had separate umpires. There was only national league umpires, only American league umpires. And of course the national league had a, had an, uh, sort of a reputation for having a wider strike zone and the American league had a tighter strike zone and, you know, umpires, you know, develop their own, um, you know, reputation for what their strike zone looked like. And, and you knew that going in. You knew that as a player. Um, veteran pitchers maybe got a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt than, than a rookie hitter would. So there, there were little nuances within that. Um, and so you could, you could get pitches if, off the plate if, if, the, if the pitcher hit your glove or, or um, you know, if, if there was a certain matchup, you, you might get a strike out there. And, and so um, I think – it has changed. I think umpires today have a lot more accountability than they used to. And I think that box is a big reason why um, they are being monitored a lot more too. And, and uh, you know, they, they, they get graded, they um, get penalized for pitches they miss, uh, you know, both balls that were strikes and strikes that were balls. Um, they get penalized for both. And um, I, I think a lot of that has, has sort of uh, brought, a new sort of um, definition to the strike zone. I think, you know, Paul Davis was a pitching coach for us last year and had, a, had done a study over the years where the, the strike zone really had gone from more east to west and now to more north and south. And I think we've seen a, a big shift. And, and again, I think a lot of it has to do with just that accountability to that strike zone box. And, and again, not, not better, not worse. It's just, you know, there, there is more technology to measure how close you are to the strike zone and, and um, I think were, were we to go to an automated strike zone, I think we see big changes in the game at that point. Uh, going on top of that one, Dan, from our catcher specifically, how do you retool that position? Or are you just going back to, like you said earlier, in one of your questions or one of your answers of the questions that we asked that the receiving just is not really under that microscope anymore. It's just, can you block? Can you throw? Can you call a game? Can you manage the guy through the game? And then can you hit? Yeah, again, I think, you know, the emphasis will shift completely. Um, and, you know, you may want you may want a middle infield type. It's going to be real quick with his, you know, transfer and release and, and, and try to throw more guys out. Uh, you may have a guy that can really hit, but can't really do a great job behind the plate. But you know, you just need to stop the ball. I mean, there, there are things, there are different ways to look at it. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see um, what the position changes, but obviously, you know, receiving just won't be the emphasis. And, and um, I think that's going to be uh, a huge shift again uh, for our position. I think that the pitching position will change dramatically too. Um, I think guys will continue to try to use more of the top of the strike zone. Um, I think they will continue to try to, I think they will maybe start to try to throw breaking balls at the top of the strike zone where it pitches the sliders that start at a, sh a hitter's shoulder and break into the strike zone. You know, you just don't see that today, but uh, you might start seeing some, some, some strange stuff. Um, but again, I think, uh, you know, we have to be open to change and, and uh, we have to be willing to, to work around that and, and to, to accept it and, and try to take advantage of it in some way. So you sound like you're pretty, you're, I guess, your tone is, is pretty optimistic, right? You're not a pessimist on this or are you against this, this strike zone? Um, I mean, 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't say again that I'm either for it or against it. Um, I think it, it does change the game a lot. I, I love the, the idea of, of an umpire back there and, and sort of that human element. I think that's the one thing that keeps getting eliminated from the game is the human element. And, um, but then, you know, you can make the case for, for the Jim Joyce call and, and, and how devastating that was. And, uh, you know, we want to get these calls right. So, uh, you know, you, you can argue both sides. I think that the, the, the important thing for players, the important thing for coaches is to understand that um, change is inevitable in our game today. And, and uh, you know, especially even now coming out of COVID and where we've been, it, it'll be interesting to see there'll, there'll be changes in the game, um, maybe not rules wise or, or whatnot, but there, there'll be changes in the game that, uh, you know, have been mandated by health officials and, and, and those kinds of things. So it'll be, it'll look a little bit different. And, and I think, again, that's, it's kind of the name of the game in baseball right now. So Dan, when you were <clears throat> with all the changes, you know, one of the big things that we see in the position is just the different levels of stances. You know, you've got all mm -hmm. these little hybrid stances, you know, guys are going to one knee and, and Listen, when we were coming up, you know, you were, you were taught, you know, if the ball's on the outside, you might want to drop your, your left knee down to get the pitch and just to give a little look. But now it seems like everyone's down there. When you caught, you were very, you know, you got very low to the ground. You know, your knees were in, you sat down real low. Um, everyone seems to talk about how do we get a better view at the bottom of the zone. And it looks like you, you already did that when you played you know, where you were going after and getting those pitches that were low um, just because of the setup. Do you think that there's, there's more of a, an emphasis on the body or if is it just, you know, giving yourself a view or maybe your glove position with that low pitch? Yeah, it's, it's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think a couple things come to mind. I mean, I think if you could point to one fundamental about receiving today, it's to stay underneath the ball so that as you're catching it, you're bringing it up into the strike zone. I mean, that to me is, is probably the number one thing. Um, and so to do that, um, you know, guys have to get creative. And I think one of the things I've always looked at in catchers and I don't do much scouting, but one of the things I think that's really important for catchers is, is this flexibility. And, everybody's flexibility is different, especially in their hips. I think you see guys who are a little bit stiffer and guys that are a little bit looser. Um, thankfully I was loose and, and I could get low. Um, but there are guys who are, are, are a bit stiffer and have trouble getting down there. So the idea is getting to a knee, you know, obviously puts them in that position and it's much easier on the body. The flexibility is there that he needs. And, and then he's working underneath the ball a lot easier. And so, um, again, I think, um, again, not better or worse, but, you know, I think on our day, and, and like you were mentioning, Chris, like that would maybe be perceived as lazy back in the day and, and not uh, conducive, you know, you'd be called lazy when, you, you know, you're not, you weren't out there to hustle. You weren't given everything you got today. Um, that's being innovative. That's, you know, trying to get underneath the ball. Maybe you have a hip problem. You can't get down there uh, in a regular stance. So let's go to a knee. Um, and do it. And even guys that, that can get in that position, I think they do go to a knee still um, because it's an easier position. It's a, it's a way you can relax. You can be very smooth um, and fluid in that position. So that's why we see that a lot. And I think that's, to me, I mean, stances come and go. I mean, Tony Pena was way ahead of his time, uh, you know, in that low stance that he had. But 
Um, I think all of it really is at the name, you know, the name of the game is, is getting as many strikes as you can. And, and if that's going to help you get more strikes, I think catching coaches and, and managers um, are willing to let guys do whatever they can to, to get more strikes. That's awesome. Well, we, we, uh, I feel like sometimes we overextend ourselves talking about the one knee setup. So let's move beyond that. Um, let's talk about game calling. And this is something that we don't really get a chance to. I mean, you've caught some amazing pitchers over the years. Um, the first thing that I want to ask you about game calling, Dan, is wh where did you learn? Where did you learn how to call a game? I think the school of hard knocks um, <laughs> is where you learn it. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to give up some late inning homers to understand, uh, to, to get those lessons learned. But um, I think it's, you know, obviously it's very experiential based and, and, and um, it does take some time to develop it. I think one of the things you look at today, and, and, and we talk about this a lot in, in, in the minor leagues and in professional baseball, oftentimes a catcher who will get drafted has, you know, he's played high school for a coach who called pitches. He's played college for a coach who's called pitches. So they come into professional baseball and all of a sudden we tell them, Hey, you know, the game is yours. Um, and that's like telling somebody to go fix the faucet and giving them an empty toolbox. Like they just don't know, they don't know how to do it. What, what do you mean? It's my game. And, and, and so, you know, I think the, the, the job that we have is, is to try to instruct guys, um, it's not necessarily right and wrong answers or, or right and wrong pitches at the right and wrong times. It's more a way of thinking and, and, and things to look for, uh, whether it be from your pitcher, which is the number one area you look for things you want to, you want to dwell on a pitcher's strength and, and let him use his strength. And if he's going to get beat, he's going to get beat with his strength. We don't want to give a hitter too much credit. Um, and then there's, there's another area that we look for, which is what is the hitter's weakness? How can we attack a certain guy and, and what are areas we can go to, um, with our pitcher strengths and then uh, lastly is really the game situation what is it what is it dictating for us a lot of times if you just look at the scoreboard from inning one you can call a pretty good game just based on the score and the inning and the outs um, and where the runners are I mean there's there's a lot of things you can infer from the scoreboard as well so you know we look at that all those areas and and to me calling a game today is really about managing all that information and and um uh, it requires guys to, to be awake, to be aware of what's going on and, and to think quickly. Um, but that's, that's where we teach our guys, you know, here are the areas to look for information, gather as much of that information as you can process it. And then when you stick that finger down, you know, it, it's not, it's not just a feeling in your gut, but it's something that you, you have a reason to put it down because you've put all this information together and it says sliders, the best pitcher or fastballs, the best pitcher. So, Tony, when we had him on, he was talking about game calling university that the Mariners do. Mm -hmm. Are you involved with that at all? Yeah, yeah. Very nice. And then one thing, going along with it, you talked about managing the game, being awake for that. Did you ever give consideration about managing when you were done? Um, not really. I mean, only because, I, you know, I wanted to, to be around home a little bit more and, and be with the family. Um, our last – son is a he's a senior in high school this year so he's going off to college maybe in the fall if if, if colleges are open um so you know obviously things are different but um you know I, I think that was the priority you know um coming out of of baseball but obviously catchers have made managers in the past I mean that's kind of the new trend um but you know I I, I think going back to, to game calling university I think that that is one area that that Tony has really 
um, done such a great job with, with our catchers in the off season is just um, giving them areas and giving them, um, you know, areas of, of, of information to look for in, in guys. And that's also about building relationships with our pitchers. And we can't forget that. I think that's a piece that's, that's very important. Um, and so, you know, it's more than just understanding his strengths as a pitcher. It's understanding his strengths as a person too. And uh, getting to know your pitchers and, and how we do that and, and building relationships and leading them, uh, you know, where you want to go. And, and uh, so those are all the things that we talk about uh, throughout the course of the off season uh, in hopes that these guys have, you know, are able to sort of hit the ground running a little bit more when they get to spring training. So I got to throw somebody under the bus here and I'm going to throw Tony under the bus here. So we were talking to him and he had mentioned that there's a certain uh, spot at the complex that's named after you. <laughs> but he said it wasn't a full-size field. He said it was a half field. So they said they give you uh, crap all the time, Dan, about how your field is <laughs> it's just a half size. <laughs> Tony loves it. He loves it. So we, uh, we redid our facility down in the Dominican Republic uh, five, six years ago. They did really an outstanding job. It's a state-of-the-art facility down there. Um, and they have four diamonds, three full diamonds, and then a half field. Uh, and yeah, I somehow got my name on one of them and it's the half field. So Tony <laughs> loves to remind me of that, uh, whenever he can, but, uh, I love it. It's great. Uh, but, but what an honor. I mean, uh, it's, it really is, uh, it really is an honor to, to have that. And, and, uh, again, the Mariners have been very, very gracious to, to me and my family over the years and just been a great partnership. And you're in the Mariners hall of fame, right? What yes. was that like? What was that like getting that honor? I mean, it's, uh, it's incredible. I think, um, you know, uh, Randy Johnson and I actually went in the same year into the Mariner hall of fame and, um, it was, uh, to go into it with him and, and then to join kind of some of the guys that I'd played with over the years and Lou Pinella's in there. And, um, I think that's a, it's, to me, that's that's the real joy that the relationships that have been built over the years, the, the family closeness that we have with with each other and our kids grew up together. And, um, you know, there's just that that bond that we have um, that, you know, is, is so difficult in the game today because players move around so much. And, uh, you know, I, I think I played um, played with Jay Buhner for seven, eight years. I played with Edgar for 10, 11 years. Um, you know, uh, Jamie Moyer for 10 years. I mean, there, there's a long stretch of, of players that, that, that I played with for a long period of time. And so you get to know each other pretty well and your families get to know each other very well and it's, and they become family and, uh, to be a part of that group is, is pretty special. Do you see anybody <clears throat> in today's game from a hitting aspect that was as, I guess, feared or as dominant as a guy like Edgar Martinez was, I mean, that, that series in 95, that was, I mean, he hit like 800 during the, uh, the series against the Yankees that, I mean, that was going back and watching those games on television. It was, didn't matter. I mean, you, you threw a slider down the way he was, he was hitting in the gap. He left something up. He's yanking it out of the yard, fastball in, you know, pull his hands in and doubled down the line. You know, you seen anyone that, that's comparable um, to that type of hitter? in today's game? That's a great question. Um, you know, Edgar's obviously his own type of hitter. You're right in that he could, you know, he just sprayed the ball so well. And, and you talk to any pitcher from, from that era and he'll tell you that he was one of the toughest outs there was because there just was nowhere to go. Uh, Cause like you mentioned, if, if you threw the slider down in a way, he could hit the ball the other way so easily, or he'd pull his hands in and pull you and, and, and do damage that way. 
Um, as I think about it, um, you know, the guy that comes to mind for me is, is Mike Trout, obviously a right-handed hitter also. Um, very different. I mean, it's hard to, to place guys because hitting is, is so unique. And, um, you know, you, you talk about a Ken Griffey Jr. swing. That was just such an unbelievable swing and such a fluid swing. And it's hard to compare somebody to his swing. Um, and so it's hard to compare totally to Edgar, but I, but I see a lot of Mike Trout where, um, a guy that, that is, that has power to all fields, which is always a dangerous thing. Um, and I, I think, I think you can pitch to Mike Trout a little bit more, um, than you could Edgar. Edgar could probably hurt you in different parts of the strike zone a little bit more, but for the most part, I mean, these guys are dangerous, dangerous hitters. And, um, you know, when, when a pitcher looks at a lineup before a ball game, you know, the names Trout and Martinez are, are guys you're not going to let beat you because they are just such a dominant part of that lineup. And, and uh, you know, to have Edgar and Junior in the same lineup for, for a big chunk of time uh, was pretty phenomenal. And, and, uh, and then you, you throw in guys like uh, Jay Buhner, you throw in guys like John Olerud, uh, who played in the early 2000s here. I mean, we had some really, really good hitters come through here. And uh, it, it really was – it was fun to watch those guys play on a, on a daily basis. So if you were – you know, guys jump, in today's game, they, they jump from organization, organization, free agency. If you were facing against Edgar, how would you have, how would you have pitched him? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Besides well, roll, roll dice in your hand and say, oh, we'll yeah. try this <laughs> I mean, to me, you know, in watching him over the years, I think he was he was very dominant in the kingdom because we had, you know, a shorter porch in right center field, and he just used to wear that thing out. Um, typically with guys, uh, you know, that are good hitters, they, they, they do lack a little bit of power the other way. So to me, you'd want to try to make him hit the ball the other way. I think that the tough part about Edgar is he could still wear you out that direction. Um, but I think for the most part, he was probably a little bit more double single oriented to the opposite field and more center field, left center and down the line and left would be his, his more power area. So, you know, it would depend on the situation, but I think to avoid uh, giving up the damage, I, I would be willing to give up, you know, a single, a double, uh, then, then I would rather, you know, him go him jump and ship and, and going deep uh, out of the ballpark to left field. So to me, I would try to approach him the other way. It wouldn't mean I'd get him out. It just mean I would probably control the damage a little bit more than than if uh, we let him try to to pull the ball. Jumping back into a little bit of the skill development, how often are you at T-Mobile Park, and then how many weeks do you spend in spring training, and then what are some of the skills that you're helping develop with the catchers in the Mariners organization? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, usually in spring training, I, I I go back and forth a little bit. I'm usually um, there about three weeks of spring training, something like that. And um, I get a chance to be around mostly the minor league catchers, but also a little bit in the major league side as well. Uh, during the season, uh, I'm at the ballpark with, with the broadcasting duties and then I'll, you know, pop into the clubhouse and, and say hello. Um, so I get a chance to be around there once or twice a homestand, something like that, to, you know, uh, to see some people. But, you know, also during the season, I'm, I'm traveling. Typically, I'm traveling to some of the minor league affiliates throughout the country and spending three, four days with the catchers there. And, and Tony and I kind of split that duty and, and uh, 
you know, kind of reinforce each other, what we, what we, what we're trying to teach and, and kind of drive home those fundamentals that we've talked about with the receiving and the game calling and, and uh, just trying to help guys develop uh, behind the plate. And, um, you know, we've got some pretty good prospects in our organization right now. And Tony's done a great job preparing them and um, getting them ready for the big leagues. And, and uh, it's exciting. It's really exciting to see, to be on that end and to see guys grow as, as players, as people. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to kind of watch them get closer and closer to the big leagues. And, and uh, you know, this is an opportunity, I think, with the Mariners organization uh, with so many young players and, and, and a sort of a, um, an, an emphasis on youth and, and, and players that are young, uh, these guys are getting an opportunity and they're getting an opportunity pretty quickly to play at the big league level. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really sped up some of these guys' development and, and they can taste it, they can feel it. And it's fun to, to watch these guys uh, become big league ball players right in front of your eyes. Yeah, Tony said that uh, <clears throat> you guys had in camp this year a kid that I used to coach, used to work with a little bit um, from Tampa, uh, Joe Hudson was in camp with you guys this year. And I think he uh, had a little bit of an injury early on, but mm -hmm. you know, uh, when I told, I told Joe that we had Tony coming on and then I mentioned that, uh, that you were coming on. He's like, Oh, that's going to be great. I can't wait to listen to Dan, the man talk. So, <laughs> and he said that, uh, you know, good relationship with all the guys. And, you know, obviously the young kids are, they need to be they need to be sponges they need to learn from the guys that have, have been there and done that before instead of just saying hey I'm right there I'm you know I'm really good it's it's almost like kids have to kind of check their egos a little bit you know and they mm -hmm. walk in they're all trying to get to the same spot but you know you use the information from as many different people as you can I hear it seven different ways until it makes sense and and that's really what helps them so yeah I, I told Joe I would I'd throw a quick little plug in for him and you know uh keep grinding it out. You know, it's the best they can do, especially in today's uh, with what's going on with baseball right now. Yeah, it's great. It was great to get to know Huddy and, and uh, uh, you know, I, I had known about him and, and uh, he reminded me of a, we had a mutual friend. And so uh, to get reunited with Joe and, and just, you know, obviously the injury was tough, but um, I think what's great about the Mariners organization and, and especially the two guys they have at the big league level at this point, Austin Nola uh, and Tom Murphy, um, these are guys that have, have come a long way. You, you look at Tom Murphy, who was almost out of the game uh, about a year and a half ago and, and uh, you know, has, has, has a new respect for the game and has come back and really taken a leadership role and, and is just more than willing to share what he's got. And, and uh, you know, guys like Huddy uh, and, and some of the other minor league guys that we have are just eating it up. And like you said, being a sponge uh, and listening and learning. And, and then you look at Austin Nola, a guy who was an infielder for a big chunk of his career, and we talk about the receiving and having good hands and, and how that has really benefited him uh, coming over from an infielder's perspective and, and, and having the good hands there and now having the great hands to receive behind the plate and, and uh, the care at which he works and, and uh, the details that he tries to uh, cover. You know, he, he's one of the more prepared guys I've ever seen. So uh, you're right. I, I think that's, I, I, you know, as much as we talk about change in the game, that's one thing that I, that I don't think changes. And, and that is that young guys uh, come in, there, there's a, there's a relative amount of intimidation regardless of how you're coming in or, or what your reputation is coming in. And uh, you know, the old adage is still the same, you know, you shut your mouth and you open your ears and your eyes and, and you just watch and observe, uh, especially at a big league camp and, and you will learn a lot. And I think, um, you know, our guys, especially, 
are, are really treated to some, some pretty, pretty good big league guys that are willing to share what they've learned, what they've seen over the years, and they come from a good perspective. And what a benefit for, for a lot of young guys to, to learn from that. So with, with a kid like, like Murphy, okay, so now I had a chance to watch him in college. He went to the University of Buffalo, which most kids aren't going to come to UB uh, for baseball, considering that this time of year, I mean, it snowed a couple times last week. You know, right. this is right in the middle of their season. And I remember watching, watching him as a college player. You know, he was always known as his bat. He, uh, he got on the radar, tore it up in the Cape Cod League, and his bat was always his calling. But he's made a, a ton of adjustments from a defensive standpoint, not only his receiving, but just his, you know, his, his transfer, his, his being able to, you know, add more aspects of the game as a, another notch on his belt. You know, so what what has his development been like since the time you guys first got him to uh, to how he developed into a major league catcher right now? Yeah, I think you know, uh, not having known Tom too much before he got here, um, I, I think if if I were to look at it, I would say he's the type of guy where you know we talked about all the changes that have happened and you know the different stances guys use, but I think um, he's the type of guy that as the position changes, it kind of it kind of changes right in more to his wheelhouse and um, I think one of the things that that he really possesses and excels at is his leadership ability and when we're talking about guys behind the plate and, and you know we talk about calling the game uh, he puts countless hours um, into that aspect of the ball game he is one of the more prepared game plan guys that I've seen behind the plate uh, and so when, when you talk about that kind of effort um, his pitchers appreciate it, that they, they trust him. Uh, obviously trust uh, in that relationship is so key. And so um, he has been able to really bring that uh, to the plate here at, in Seattle. And I think that has really blossomed. It's been really appreciated by a lot of folks. And, and uh, you know, that's a position where you need that. And, and to see that kind of develop from him, I think his perspective change, you know, almost having been out of the game and now back into it, I think he's taking a much different approach. He's just letting it all hang out and, and really um, trying to take this leadership role seriously. And I think it's done nothing but wonders for his game. And um, aside from all the physical things that he's done, he does a great job you know, receiving the ball. He's got a great arm. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's just another added bonus to what he can already do. You have uh, a bunch of boys. Are they catchers? <laughs> we have two boys one plays baseball one doesn't uh one is a catcher he uh was an infielder for most of his life I told him stay away from behind the plate until you have to go back there um and uh he started catching about his senior year in high school and then um ended up at the University of Minnesota and just got drafted last June uh with Pittsburgh so he's in the Pittsburgh organization but living at home now as we all wait to see what happens to the minor league season. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's just getting his introduction now to professional baseball. He played um, in uh, rookie ball last summer and, and really enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, he's just getting getting started. That's awesome. That's Is that awesome. kind of a, uh, you know, an, an extra little feel good as far as being a dad, watching him go and then playing the same position, you know, that you played at the professional level? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I've um, – I've done my best to, to let him guide his, his whole career and, and, and kind of take things uh, as he wanted to do it. I, I never wanted to force anything on him. And, and uh, he's been really, really good about it. 
Um, but I will say on my end, it's been really interesting. And again, you know, I talk about learning a lot from Tony. I've actually learned a lot from my son too, um, because, um, you know, he, he's coming into the game at a time when all this, uh, it, it's just normal to him. And so yeah. we get into a lot of discussions a lot. And, you know, I, I think he's probably called me old school at times, but uh, I'll take that. That's okay. Um, but we, we've had really good conversations and, and, um, again, it's, it's been, it's, it's helped me learn. I hope it's helped him learn too. Um, but yeah, I, I try to keep it more as a dad and, and really enjoy, uh, we had a chance to go to Bristol, Tennessee last year where he was playing and, and watch a couple games. And, um, it really was fun. It was great to, to see it from a dad perspective rather than a coaching perspective. And, um, you know, that's, uh, it's really something special when you can see your son kind of go through a professional experience and, and uh, hopefully things go well for him, but you just, you know, you don't know, and, and uh, he's got a good head on his shoulders, so he'll be all right either way. Do you think a lot of the kids today are almost <clears throat> overcoached with all this stuff? I mean, you can go on Twitter or any of the other social media platforms and see, you know, the most insane things out there, you know, from a teaching perspective. And with the, the age of technology, there's, I mean, we didn't, when I played, the only video we would have would be the, the big camcorder with the VHS mm -hmm. tape that you'd slide in and you could watch your hitting. There was nothing for receiving, you know, you, you might video a picture from behind home plate, but it was all blurry. And the way thing is, the way stuff is today, you know, guys have almost too much um, technology available for them. You know, do you think that gets in the way with trying to be so technical all the time versus, hey, you're an athlete. Let's just go and see what works best for you. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of things, you know, I look at the amateur game today and I'm a little bit removed now that my kids are a little bit older. But, um, you know, there are a lot of things I think that are very, again, they're different. Um, that, and I think that's one of them. Technology has been introduced at such a young age. And I think sometimes that tends to take the fun out of it a little bit. Um, and I think certainly we, we see sometimes too, where a guy might technically be pretty sound in what he does. He's got good mechanics and, you know, he's worked on his, whether it's a pitcher, he's worked on his delivery or it's a hitter. He's worked on his swing and he's got real good hitting mechanics, but maybe just hasn't played in a lot of games and just doesn't have a lot of game sense or, you know, how do you play this game? And, and those kinds of things. So you, you, you see some of those different things and you, and you think that maybe at some level, you know, amateur baseball uh, needs to, to go through a little bit of a change. And, and uh, you know, I think a lot uh, about, you know, having played three sports in high school as a, as a high school athlete and how beneficial all that was for me as an athlete uh, and how that helped me in my game eventually in baseball. Um, and you see this specialization really early on when kids are, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, they're playing one sport for the rest of the, uh, of the time and, and they're, they're breaking down early. Um, I think there's a lot of things that can be looked at in terms of amateur baseball that, that could probably change for the better. Um, and that might be one of them. Um, and, and, and technology, I mean, I think you, you start to introduce that stuff too early and um, it can become, can cloud the mind a little bit. It can take away from athleticism. And I think it can take away from the fun of the game, just competing and being an athlete uh, and reacting athletically when you get on the field. I mean, that, that's all part of the, the growth too. So uh, it's a great point. I think there's a, there's a slippery slope. I think there's, there's good and bad to both. Just, you know, I think there's, you can get overboard with, with some of those uh, aspects of the game. I don't know. Just, just talking, I mean, me and Tyler and a lot of the guys out there right now, 
you know, the way that we give back to the game, you know, is through the youth, is to kind of pass along the torch, take the information that we learn, pass it on to the kids. Like we didn't, we didn't have any of this growing up. You know, there were no, there were no guys that we could reach out to online. There were no, you know, there, I never went for any, any baseball instruction. It was, it was always just, Hey, who am I watching on television? You know, who do I want to, I think there was more imitation than there was actually instruction. Yes. You know, I Amen. don't think I, I didn't learn anything. I think I was, a, I think it was my senior year of, of high school. I went down to the, the Doyle baseball school with Brian and Denny Doyle in Orlando. I've been and that there. was like the, it was the greatest thing ever, you know, and I yeah. learned, Hey, your hips are supposed to do this. You're supposed to get to contact here. You know, what was the, the big thing that they used to teach the T position, you yeah. know, and throwing and all this stuff. And it was, and now you, you look at a kid who's, you know, 10, 11 years old and their mechanics are, are so much more better in the training aspect. I mean, mm -hmm. how much, how much training did you go through from a, from a, even like uh, working with weights, you know, early on in your career? I mean, there, there's kids right now that have personal trainers at 11, 12 years old, all the, all the young travel teams, they, they work with a, they work with the trainer once a week and, there's it's almost like they're not kids they're just hey we're you're gonna go ahead and run through this and you're gonna jump on boxes and you're gonna do your ladders and you know I, I didn't we didn't see that till I was you know a few years into my career I mean now they're doing it so young and now you see the you know the the velocities that's the that's the biggest difference that I always say when when I played you know we had I, I played from 95 to 05 and we would see you know, whether it's double A AA or triple A, you might have one guy or maybe two that were, you know, running up around mid nineties. And those mm -hmm. are the guys you're like, Oh geez, I got to really get ready for, I got to cheat early today. You get so-and-so on the mound. You right. look at it today and every single bullpen guys are coming out 96, 98. I mean, there's, there's nobody. If, if you had a, a Jamie Moyer or a Greg Maddox or, or a Glavin, even do you think these guys are even getting drafted today? you know, with their stuff, they could all pitch, but it's, yeah. it's so velocity driven. You think that, uh, that helps the game or, or it, um, you almost kind of puts a backseat to being able to, to work a batter and get them off balance instead of just trying to, you know, blow it by them every time. Yeah. It's, it's, again, that's a great question. And I, I want to go back to the thing that, that you mentioned about, um, you know, not having as, as young players, we didn't have the, you know, the early instruction and, and the, the early, you know, mechanical breakdown that, that they do today. And I think you mentioned imitation, and I think that is so important. I, I grew up in the Chicago area, as I mentioned. And so for me, uh, in the summer, the Cubs were on every day at one thirty. That's when they started their games. And so, you know, we'd go out and play wiffle ball all morning, and then we would make sure we'd come back for lunch about 1 o'clock so we could watch the Cubs game. And I think one, some of my best – the, some of the best things I learned as a player was just watching guys play, watching guys hit and then going out on the wiffle ball field and trying to do what they did and to see if it worked and trying it in the little league game. And I think that is such an underrated um, part of being an athlete. I think good athletes can, can see it. It's, it's like playing the piano by ear, right? You can hear a song and then go immediately and play it. The good athletes can look and see a good swing and then they can almost go out and, and emulate it. And I think, I think about all the times where we'd play wiffle ball and you'd go through your favorite team and his lineup and that lineup, and it would be the leadoff hitter and you'd take his stance and then you'd go to the second hitter and take his stance. I mean, you just, 
you observe things so much more. And today, I mean, yes, there are comparisons, um, but it's different. It's, 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 you know, it's such a mechanical breakdown. It's more of a focus on your swing rather than what, what is their swing and just go out and do it. And um, I, I still am grateful that I had a chance to watch so many Cubs games growing up and see so many different players come through uh, because I think it really, really taught me a lot about the game. And, and, and um, I, I see it going in a, in a different direction today. That's, it's a little bit dangerous um, because it does get very technical very early. To the part about, you know, Glavin and Maddox and can those guys get drafted today? Um, I, think, I think they can. I mean, I, I, as I look at the draft, you know, obviously this year is different because they're going to go to five rounds. Um, but, but with the possibility of maybe losing some affiliates and, and the minor league shrinking a little bit, um, you know, I think it's going to be harder and harder, um, for guys to get drafted. The pool is going to get a little bit smaller. And so, you know, I think things like velocity will become more of the, more of a measure. And I think, unfortunately, we might lose some of those types of guys. Um, and that's, is it better? I don't know if it's better for the game or not, but it is something obviously that is kind of the other end of the spectrum in terms of, uh, of that kind of a thing. So it'll be interesting to see how the game breaks down. So when you see a <clears throat> pitching like that, now there was always one guy, you know, in the league that was a knuckleball guy. You know, mm -hmm. you look at the old guys, you know, with the Necro brothers and, yeah. you know, we had Tim Wakefield. To, yeah, Wakefield and then uh, even R.A. Dickey. Mm -hmm. And you just, that's a, that's an afterthought right now. You don't, you just don't, those little wrinkles, it seems like they're kind of being pushed away from the game and who knows if they'll come back, you know, later on, everything tends to be circular in this game anyways. Yes. You never, you never know what's going to happen regarding catching though. So we were talking about, you know, imitating your, your favorite hitter. Who was, who was the catcher you used to imitate or emulate <laughs> when you were younger? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I mentioned I was a Cub fan, but I was I, I watched all their games, but I was more a Cincinnati Reds fan just because they were the big red machine in the mid 70s. So uh, no better person to watch than Johnny, Johnny Bench. Bench. He was my guy. Yeah. Um, number five on the back of a lot of T-shirts that I had growing up just to put it on there. And, um, you know, he was a guy obviously talk about change. You know, he changed the position. He went to the hidden glove. He became a one handed catcher um and and was kind of the first to do so so um you know the, the position has changed over the years but it just takes time it took time then it, it goes a lot faster now but he was a guy I love to watch just you know you talk about a well-rounded catcher um could throw unbelievable you know an unbelievable arm did you ever um, see him live uh never I never I saw him play yeah when the Reds would come through Wrigley Field my, my parents would get tickets and we'd go down there and we weren't there for the Cubs. We were there for the Reds. But, uh, you know, we would watch Johnny Bench, and uh, I loved it. Yeah, and, and um, you know, obviously as a kid, you're just kind of soaking it in. But, uh, you know, the size of his hands, just, just how big his hands were, and, and, and he was just strong. And then the, the ability to hit as well. Uh, he, was, he was the whole package uh, behind the plate, and, and uh, it was just awesome to watch. Yeah, some of the, uh, some of the old scouts – you know, that I've known over the years when we would talk about catching um, and they would bring up Johnny Bench and they would talk about his arm and they're just like, you know, yeah, there's, there's guys with good arms right now and great arms, but it's almost like Bench was on another, he was just on another level with arm strength, even compared to the guys today, guys like Real Muto and, you know, Sanchez who are throwing the ball 
you know, mid upper eighties down to second, which is, which is insane to begin with. But mm -hmm. to hear the other guys saying, yeah, we've, we've seen all these guys and they still didn't have anything on bench. His, his thing was a, was a rocket launcher attached to his shoulder. He clicked a button and boom, it was gone. Yeah. And, you know, having a chance to play against Pudge all those years, uh, Pudge Rodriguez in Texas, um, another guy with just, you know, absolute hose. But to me, you know, his he had really quick feet. He was super athletic, oh, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. And so to, to see his feet, the combination of his feet and his arm, uh, unbelievable. Again, different different level um, to, to watch that. It was it was awesome. I saw him one of the one of the very first um, spring trainings early on and a minor league guy go up for a for a big league game and he happened to be in Port Charlotte watching, you know, playing against the playing against the Rangers and it's, I mean, it's a thousand degrees in that little swampy area oh, yeah. of Florida, but yeah, you, you would see him and second was impressive, but to watch his pickoffs to first base, oh, it was yeah. almost like he was just like an assassin, you know, a guy would take three feet off and he'd be diving back for his life. And just the way that he got rid of it was just, I think it, when he came on the scene, that imitation thing, you had so many guys, try to be like Pudge and everyone wanted to get the Wilson gloves, the Pudge model. That yeah. was the big thing in there. I, I think you were, you were a Wilson guy, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I didn't use this. He used a really small glove. I didn't like the smaller glove. I used the bigger model, but yeah, I was a Wilson guy. So with, with all the equipment now today, you look at, you know, you can look every other week and guys got their, you know, like uh, yesterday, if games are being played, you would saw everyone with their pink catcher's gear, you know, right. and it's, how many how many sets of gear did you have through a season? How many color variations <laughs> compared to what the, I mean the guys probably have about 20 different sets of gear for, you know, what looks better if it's overcast or if it's sunny or, you know, <laughs> do I wear the white so I look like a stormtrooper? You know, what did what was the most set of <laughs> the most pairs of gear you, know, you went through during a year? Uh I would usually go through I don't know, four or five sets of gear, probably. Uh, you probably wear the shin guards out a little bit faster than the chest protector, but uh, it was just beginning to get more colorful as I was getting out, like where they had the, the like you were talking about, the stormtrooper, the gray gear on the road. And I never fell for it, though. I just, I was too traditional. <laughs> I, I didn't like the hockey mask, even though I played hockey growing up. Um, I still like just the traditional uh, skull cap and, and mask. And uh, I just kept the one color of gear all year long. I didn't want to. I didn't want to mix it up. Have you tried but, on any of the new gear, like the shin guy? My all-star <clears throat> always sends my, my son, who's in, he's going to be 14 later this month. He's an eighth grader. And they always send him, you know, new gear like every year. And yeah. I've, I've put it on and I've, I'm like, oh my Lord, like this stuff here, it's almost like you're wearing the, the pillow that the umpires used to wear. I mean, you don't yeah. feel anything. You, you sit down there and kneel and you got the gel and the, and the air pockets and it is the most comfortable. The kids don't realize how spoiled they are with the gear today compared to what yeah. we, I mean, you had the first chest protector that I, I went through was the same that you had, which was the, the little the foam. Yeah. The pillows yeah. just all stitched together and you would take a ball in the stomach or the chest oh. and you'd knock the wind out of you. And, and now kids get hit, especially they got the, uh, the NOC NAE um, regulations, the the heart guards, and I mean, you could you could literally hit a kid with a sledgehammer in the middle of the chest, and they're still not feeling it. 
it's yeah, just yeah. The, the the equipment today is just i mean but there it is there's technology again for you yeah exactly yeah and so some of it you know obviously makes it, it is for the better that's i, I mean the, the shin guards are way more protective and they're a lot lighter than they used to be i mean all that stuff the masks are a lot lighter everything is it's better. There's no question. It'd be, yeah, it, it is nice. You're probably not getting, you weren't getting concussions like you were, or like they are now, I should say, right? I mean, you got hit with one of those heavier masks. It felt like. I don't, I don't think nobody knew. You would get, oh, yeah. you get your bell rung and you'd be like, oh, that was a good one. You know, yeah. it, we did get bell rung. I mean, your bell did get rung. You get the foul tips that would sort of knock you back. And, um, but I, you know, I, some, sometimes I think maybe I should go get checked and other times I think I don't know if I want to get checked. <laughs> well, it's funny because in, in all the uh, all the little trainers boxes, you know, I, I, I know we all did it. You know, you would play around in there and they'd always have the uh, the little ammonia packets. Oh, yeah. Salts, the ammonia tablet. And guys would be like, oh, let's see who can take a, the strongest whiff of this. And, you know, <laughs> just stupid stuff you do as a as a player <laughs> going through. But now, yeah, everything is you take a, a foul tip and you got seven people, you know, checking your eyes with, uh, you know, with the lights and making sure yeah. everything's good. It's, there, there's more safety um, that goes on. Speaking of safety, though, so one of the one of the, the things that they've kind of taken away in baseball and, and I'm, you know, I, I kind of view myself as an old school guy um, yeah. when Buster Posey, you know, got run at the plate. Mm-hmm. I think it was more of his fault for putting himself into that position, but it completely changed the game where they, you know, you can't slide and take guys out at, at the bases, you know, sliding into home, you have to show them the plate. You can't block it. There's no more collisions. So was, mm-hmm. who was, I'm sure you, you were involved in a few different collisions. Was there anyone that was memorable? And, you know, what's your take? Do you think that's a part of the game that should have stuck? And just being that part of the position where, hey, catchers are a different breed. You know, we know what's expected. We know we're going to hang in there and we're not going to give up the plate. Kind of that kind of that hard-headedness, you know, old school mentality. Yeah, that's a great, you know, I think the, the, the position of catching, that's kind of when it started to change. That particular rule was, was one of the ones that really began to change. Uh, that position and then then the receiving thing kind of came on after that with the technology and whatnot but um, I I loved that part of the game I I loved the ability um, to say you know this is my plate and and you're gonna have to run me over to to, to touch it Um, I I I really took pride in that part of it Uh, there was there was a little bit of an art to it and you know you you had to kind of let guys believe they could find part of the plate and then take it away from them when when you had a chance to take it away from them and yeah you know you get run over from time to time and it might hurt a little bit but I think uh, when we talk about developing that trust and that relationship with your pitcher I mean as a pitcher nothing would feel better than for my catcher to throw his body in front of that plate to, to not allow a run for me as a pitcher and I think that would be uh, uh, such a great way to develop that trust in that relationship with your pitcher. So there's so many areas of that, um, that part of the game that, that were so beneficial for catchers. And yeah, physically we took a beating from time to time and guys got knocked out and the, the, the injury to the buster was, was unfortunate for sure. Um, but I loved that part of the game. And I, I guess I, I, I can see both sides. I can understand you don't want guys to get hurt. Um, no question, but, but, 
to, to lose that part of the game, I felt was, was, was too bad because I did love that part of the game. And uh, I got my bell rung a couple of times and I, you know, I don't remember particular, there, there was nothing that was too particular. I, I tried to protect myself as much as I could and give with the runner as, as he was running into me to kind of cushion the blow. Um, but nothing jumps out at me, but I remember getting, getting hammered a couple of times and, and, you know, uh, when you held on to the ball and, and you got rung, your bell rung a little bit, there was no better feeling than, than to roll that ball back uh, to the mound when the inning was over and kind of say, hey, you know, I beat you today. Nice and that, that, was, that was a good feeling as a catcher. That toughness, that mental toughness, that, that's what really separated the catchers. You know, you, yeah. you have a guy that's going to get his nose dirty and he's going to take that hit for his pitcher. Those are the guys that loved you, you know, and it's – you see – the guys that you'd always have fun with are all the, you know, the middle infielders, if you short, you know, short hop a ball, they're going to try to pick it. They're not going to really get their body in front of it. Right. Right. Cause they're, you know, they want to get dirty. They got the, the three wristbands on both their arms, the batting gloves in both their pockets, you know, the, the pretty boys almost, but the catching position was always the, these guys are the extension of the coach. These guys are the, the bulls, you know, yeah. these are the guys you can go to war with. And, once they took that out, it's almost like that, that mentality or that, that type of person, that leadership aspect almost kind of, kind of went away a little bit. You know, I, I've always yeah, loved that, it. I, I wish it would come back, but you know, everything is involved with, you know, keeping everybody safe, you know, for the, I guess, for the betterment of the game. Yeah. And I mean, I think when you watch a game now, like it's, everybody slides at home plate, which I think is almost dangerous too for the runner, but um but but everybody slides and you know it, it really uh, the rule as it has been applied really has done its job because i think guys now just they don't even try they just go ahead and slide and yep. take their chances but well this has been fun dan we appreciate your time yeah um, thank you guys appreciate it one thing i wanted to ask you so you're in seattle right we 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 learned about that at the beginning of the show how much does it rain there <laughs> you know it does rain here from about october to i would say june it's pretty gloomy here um but it's not like you know i grew up in chicago where it could get real cold and mm -hmm. you know it, it was real windy and so you can st it doesn't get much lower than 45 in the winter time here so you can get out and go for a run or you know it's not it's not uh, freezing like it was in Chicago so that was <laughs> maybe the the silver lining to it but there are times and um, one of the first things when I got done playing when I didn't go down to spring training anymore because I would spend you know you'd spend six weeks in Arizona it one of the worst times here it's February it's really really gray so you didn't really see how much it affected you and then when you when I got done playing like and I was around here more often during those times it was like wow this is really rough here in the winter time in terms of the grayness so <laughs> It does. It does get to you from time to time, but the summers are absolutely beautiful. So awesome. we'll awesome. take it. Well, definitely. Well, again, we can't thank you enough for taking the time. Um, loved every minute of this. So uh, I'm sure everybody else will, will love listening to this one. So thank you again. Well, yeah. yeah thank absolutely. you guys. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you great, both. Great to meet you down Dan. the line. Let me know. Appreciate it, Dan. Beautiful. Stay safe. Thanks again. All right. Thanks guys. Take care. All right, everyone, that concludes the seventh inning here at the Mound Visit. And it's safe to say, Dan is the man. Thank you to him for taking the time with us today. More to come this week. But before we sign off, we also want to say thank you to our loyal partners over at All Star Sports. 
it looks like we may get some baseball here soon. So catchers and amateur catchers, make sure you have your Noxie certified chest protectors. All-Star Sports has you covered. Remember, everybody, please stay safe, stay tuned, and we'll catch you real soon.